Today at the SCGI Directors in Dialogue, award-winning production designers Tom Conroy and Anna Rackard talk about their work in two major projects, Neil Jordan's Ondine and acclaimed TV series The Tudors. The way we were talking about doing this, two things. One, Anna's going to do is sort of bring you through a sort of artistic uh, kind of view of Undine, um, which is just done with Neil Jordan. And then I'm going to talk mainly about the Tudors, um, but it's going to be more structural. It's about more the kind of nuts and bolts. Uh, a lot of time, you know, we hide a lot of stuff from the directors. You know. Uh, we filter out a lot of things, you know, that you don't actually kind of ever, you know, get to trouble your furrowed brows. So I, I, tonight is kind of a you know perhaps good experience or a good opportunity to, um, to you know reveal a few of those kind of things, reveal some of the stuff. So do you want to? Um, yeah. Um, well, just to say that um, before I started production designing, I was art directing on sort of big scale films that were building huge big sets, and then when I started production designing, not only did I start sort of at the bottom of you know production design scale, but also the scale of films that were being made in Ireland kind of shrank. Um, so even something that was like Ondine, which is for Neil Jordan, was a very low budget film, really. And um, so in a way, I suppose the approach is kind of maybe different to both those things in a way. You know? um, and ob- obviously more and more nowadays, which we'll maybe talk about later a bit, is that money is just, money is always a sort of an issue or an element that, that's really important in design. But um, more so, I think, now, you know, because there's so little of it, basically. So um, I suppose, um, say, working on Ondine, um, for me, the very first important, the first time I get to meet a director is in the interview that I do um, for the job. And generally speaking, I'll have read the script um, maybe once and um, will have formed some ideas about what I think about the film. So um, when I, you know, about the mood, about the characters, but I, I won't have have had any input from the director at that point and really the very first meeting it's really crucial you kind of uh, you don't really know you're sort of in the dark a little bit about what the director is going to their approach is going to be you know so you can kind of put your your neck on the line and give your point of view you know uh, which they may hate and that has happened or you know you can um, I suppose it depends on the meeting but sometimes it can be something that you're just listening to what their input is and then reacting to that at the interview stage, you know. Because um, it's also happened to me as well at some um, meetings where if for whatever reason I didn't do the job, um, some, of the, some of the visuals I have shown to the directors have ended up, some of the ideas have ended up in films that I didn't do, it's happened to me once. And in some ways that's made me quite wary about being really, um, about putting too much into that first meeting. But in a way you want to get the job, so you want to put in loads, but at the same time, um, I don't know, you have to sort of keep some of it back. So when I when I did my um, first meeting with um, Neil, I showed him, I brought two books to the meeting. One is by a photographer called Anthony Goykolia, is that how you pronounce that name? He had an exhibition in the RHJ. Um, the Andean script has this kind of um, sense of magic because it's this idea of Andean as this um, woman that comes from the sea and this uh, little girl makes up a story about her being a selkie so it has this kind of fairy tale element to it um, but it's not really written in the script I suppose how much you know visually how much of that is apparent on the screen so um, these these images um, I bought two different books so this first one um, 
have these very beautiful uh, kind of obvious kind of underwater kind of element to them but they also had this kind of strange uh, stylized um bit to them that are kind of odd and maybe slightly contemporary for me anyway had some sort of contemporary sort of feel to them and that were strange and unusual and I thought in some way I thought maybe that Neil might quite like these but in actual fact I was really wrong and um, he hated them <laughs> he picked up the book and flicked through it and went oh my god nearly threw it in the ground you know but luckily I bought this other book with me <laughs> uh, which is my saving grace and um, this is by um, I think he's Finnish uh, photographer called Esko Maniko and is that how you pronounce that name anybody <laughs> no <laughs> Connor I'm looking at you I know this photographer um, and these were um, uh, portraits or, um, of mostly of uh, Finnish um, kind of fishermen or men that live in a town in Finland, really kind of bleak, kind of stark realism. Um, and he absolutely adored this book. Um, and in a funny way, you know, there's nothing really fairy, kind of obviously fairy tale about these images. There's nothing really kind of magical or, or you know, straightforward or obviously beautiful, but in a way they, they kind of have a beauty. Obviously, they have a beauty to them. Um, so this, showing these two books and getting his sort of initial reaction to the two very different styles gave me kind of an immediate clue as to what way he was thinking. And maybe he hadn't even, um, he hadn't even voiced that himself or sort of thought that out loud, but sort of seeing those images kind of um, made him, forced him one way or another in a way. Um, so... Yeah, I guess that was that contrast between, on the one hand, a very stylized look in those other images, and this very real kind of realism, um, and that was a really that was an important element that I held on to for the whole film. That the sense of realism uh, was an integral part. But he Neil doesn't he do, he doesn't talk he doesn't chat a lot about his ideas. I don't know you've worked with them as well, yeah. Tom. So. He's no, he says more, very little. I really. think he's more like a sort of, uh, he kind of acts. It's funny because when I worked with him, I thought, um, oh, you know, here's this great visual stylist who's just going to yeah. be bombarded with uh, ideas. And he's more of somebody, he's more reactive, I think. Yeah. He's more like a, an editor, almost a kind of editing sort of the, the things that might get, you know, put in front. Yeah. Um, it certainly might be all in his head, but he sort of doesn't sort of tell you, he doesn't put it out there. So you're sort of guessing, it, uh, in a way, guessing quite a lot. Um, the only two things I would say that he sort of directly said to me about the look of Andine was the sense of magic, which was, you know, a very elusive thing to say, because that could be like Harry Potter has a sense mm -hmm. of magic, which is completely over the top, you know, but then something else can have a sense of magic that's not so apparent. So. You know, I had to figure that out really where on the scale of not one to ten, you know, was the magic to be. And also he wanted the film to have a timeless feel to it so that it wasn't set in any particular era. And again, that's all that's that can, you know, it's a sort of a line you're trying to sort of balance or something all the time. Um, what I did like about Neil um, throughout the film when I showed him, because um, basically I bombarded him <coughs> with images all the time, photo mostly photographic images. Um, that if I showed him stuff, he never got um, freaked out by something he didn't like. He'd usually just laugh at something really <laughs> ridiculous, you know, and kind of move on. Um, he was kind of he was open to ideas. I could see he was somebody that that um, was used to collaborating creatively with people. You know, he didn't judge me if I showed him something that was off. You know, that was kind of slightly off. He just said no, and that was fine as far as I was concerned. And then I knew that was not where he wanted to go. You know. 
and then the stuff that he liked it did um, you know um, latch onto it so I, I think in a way with the very first meeting as a director it's good to you don't necessarily have to nail, and as a designer, whereas I'd hope a director doesn't expect a designer to have nailed the look of the film um, in the first meeting, because it is a process throughout the film, or certainly in the early stages, trying to um, resolve through collaboration what the look of the film might be. And very few directors, I think, have a clear, you know, some people might have a very clear vision of what they want from the very beginning, but even in a way, somebody like Neil, who has in a way has a very strong visual style, didn't have a very strong visual idea about what he wanted Ondine to look like. So the other thing about that I like about looking at images, about looking at photographs and that is that um, there can be an element in them that, like in that image that I maybe at the time didn't quite understand what he was looking at, but there can be something in them that isn't necessary. That's not how Ondine looks, but there's something about that image that is important to the look of Andine, if you know what I mean. Uh, and it, it's almost like an elusive moment or something. It can be something to do with colour, it can be lighting, it can be just a mood, it can say something about a particular character. So um, I ch generally, you know, use a lot of photographic images or whether it's or paintings, but, but say something like Andine, more contemporary, I would use um, photographic images more. Um, and these photographic images then are really important with the costume designer and the DOP um, and the costume designer and myself worked together quite a lot just trying to nail what was the feeling and what was the thing that Neil was trying to um, get. Yeah, basically I, I um, how I used the images was I pasted the walls of the art department with millions of photographs, it was like a big collage and um, I divided the, in the film there's sort of like, you know, three or four main characters and I divided each area into like one character and then I also um, took the landscape um, and as a character as well so the sea was a character and the town was a character and I, I had all of these images all over the walls of the art department and edited them all the time so Neil would come up and just kind of wander around and look at things and uh, you know he'd sort of you know point to things that he liked and then you'd just take it down and re-edit it and you know and eventually you got this kind of collage that also you know in a blink of an eye you can kind of see some sort of overall sense of like a patchwork of what the whole thing might kind of look like you know they're not exact singular images but you know you've got a sense of colour whether it's from the all the photographs of the sea and the the boat that we um the trawler that we used or uh from the town and the colours in the town so uh, and anybody that comes in then like like any anybody working in my department when they come in they can kind of see instantly what it is i'm trying to get or you know what we're, we're so one of the, the main locations that we had was um, this location, which is Pooling Harbour down in um, uh, Castletown Bear. Um, so this is a place that Neil knew and um, had already sort of, and um, in the script, um, Syracuse is a fisherman and his, his mother is meant to have lived in a caravan in Pooling Harbour here. So in the script, the script is a caravan. So like, there you go, that's a caravan. <laughs> so initially it started out with this caravan idea, <clears throat> which we played around for quite a while. They're pretty basic things, you know, <laughs> and there was a lot of stuff inside the caravan, um, which are, you know, are quite small and, you know, they're hard to shoot in. So we looked at a lot of images of caravans and the idea of maybe extending them some way. 
of adding things to it and this idea of Syracuse's mother and maybe the, the caravan then began to, you know, maybe it's not a caravan, it's something else. So we started to look at lots of different ideas um, of what it could be. So it sort of started to develop from a caravan idea into a hut. Um, did you get these yourself or did you get somebody to get photos for you? There's a variety, like a lot of stuff from the net, a lot of from books that I collect and certain images I would have taken myself. Like I had taken that photograph um, on the previous film I was working on Galway and there were just these really interesting sheds made from doors and windows that I thought were great and in a way that was a really central idea to this set that we built in the end um, and then that was somebody I think uh, who in the art department had passed this place and photographed that you know so this idea I mean Syracuse's mother she sort of you know she doesn't exist in the film we never meet her she's already dead so there was no sense of really who she is. Um, I think in the end, uh, Syracuse kind of describes her as a sort, some sort of gypsy. So you don't quite know whether she's a hippie or an eccentric or a traveler or a what. So we kind of went with the idea that she's maybe slightly some sort of eccentric hippie type place. Um, like the film has this magical sense to it, but it's also got a very dark area in it as well. So there was kind of two elements and this was the place where he meets where he kind of falls in love with this uh, woman that he pulls from the water and she sort of ends up sort of staying here yeah. um so this this set was to have a really i suppose a really beautiful kind of magical feel to it so we built this um hot the still kind of bits of the stuff around it and did all this kind of landscaping around it um because this was just a green field site basically and the interior then is kind of made from basically lots of bits of cupboards that we bought and kind of, you know, fitted into it and sort of a lot of salvage and carpets and lino and things from houses in the area and, you know, just to give it a very kind of old, I don't know, sort of faded, but kind of romantic. Um, could I ask about budget? Um, were you told what your budget was going to be? I mean, I'm just asking in reference to maybe you were told we can't build sets, you have to get a, a location, or were you told you can go, go ahead and build sets? Well, uh, the very first um, thing I did when I read the script after I met Neil and that was I did a breakdown of the script, which broke it down to sort of all the elements like animals and vehicles and props and <coughs> any of the sets, and I did my own budget. Then I found out what the producer's budget was. And there was quite a bit of a difference, really. Um, and then we discussed the idea of building. This had to be built in a way, you know. I mean, we could have just plonked a caravan on the site and then, you know, built a little interior set of it, but not very expansive, or you know, it just wouldn't have been as good. Um, so the producers kind of saw that. I mean, what they had in for some areas was just so ridiculously small. Um, they always under budget for certain things. I think the vehicles in particular. And they cost a lot of money, um, but even for something like building a set, they really virtually had no money in for that. So it was cheaper to build this as an interior exterior set on location than to build the exterior and location and then build the interior and studio. Building if we built the interior studio, in some ways it's kind of safer because if it rains, like if it's a really bad rain, you know, you can co go shoot in the studio and it's everything's fine. But what you gain from this particular set being on location is that, say, a view like that 
of because the exterior is so important to the to the interior. And it was a really big kind of critical decision because um, you would have lost this, but I suppose you would have had the guarantee of all those shooting days of interior being safe and dry and absolutely being able to work in it. And in a way, there was a certain amount of luck that we had to have to be able to shoot on this because if it had been like three or four weeks rain, we did get a lot of rain down there, it would have been really impossible to shoot here, you know. And did you have, uh, was there a lot of action in and out? And there was, yeah, things? yeah. But I think with this, and it's such a small set really, that to have that in a studio and you would have not had those views and, you know, yeah, you just wouldn't have the same flow and the same connection so that way. But um, that whole idea of budget, I suppose, you're always trying to, um, we were talking about, sort of touched on earlier, that uh, in a way... I mean, Neil was a producer also on the film, so he was more interested or more into the figures maybe than sometimes maybe, you know, than more involved in that end of things. But at the same time, you, you're not, you don't want to be going to a director and saying, well, you can't afford that, you can't afford that. And I know you want that, but you can't afford it. You, you know, you can't really approach it like that. You kind of have to sort of take it all in balance. And, you know, a director might want certain things and you'll get a feel, um, I was involved in a project last year that ended up not going ahead, but I knew the director had a certain vision that the budget just, there was no way that the budget was going to m match that. And the producers weren't really dealing with that problem. Um, and uh, I knew it was going to be very difficult and uh, they wouldn't give me the budget that I felt was necessary. And I was on a point of saying, well, I, don't, I can't do it. I can't do this project because uh, just with that particular director, they wouldn't have taken that on board. They wouldn't have been able to sort of go, okay, we've only got this amount of money, then we have to make these rational decisions. They would have just kind of gone. Um, the next um, set, I suppose, um, which I don't have any finished photographs of, was um, the main character's house, was the fisherman, which is Syracuse's house. Um, um, this was, uh, I suppose, relatively straightforward in some ways because we went back to that book on the Finnish fishermen and this idea of a kind of, um, I suppose, kind of beautiful but slightly um, lonely uh, kind of lifestyle or something. Um, and again, I mean, just, you know, I suppose you can get really beautiful images and beautiful colours and textures from something as, I don't know, that's kind of ornate. Do you have a, a colour scheme for some, some of the locations and don't put some colours in certain locations? Or? Uh, to some extent uh, I did. Um, I mean Moore's house, which is the, the sort of grim alcoholic's house, we use a lot of blue, a lot of dark colours. Um, and it's a very, um, I think it's quite a, a contrast with um, the lightness of the caravan, you know, in the film. Um, and then I guess the sea was just, with, you know, n not really specifically. I mean, I think it was more to do with dark and light. And um, we used a lot of, and, and maybe more to do with pattern, we used quite a lot of strong pattern in Morris House to have this kind of oppressive feeling. Um, and then in Ondines, it's kind of everything is, in the caravan is kind of faded and um, kind of washed out. Um, That's coming from you as yeah. opposed to the director. Yeah, okay. yeah. 
and then in the fisherman's house we didn't really use any pattern I mean the, these are just the locations that don't have any of the set but <coughs> they're sort of like we took out a lot of elements here but you know we it was kept sort of I suppose simpler I mean there's still there's a lot of colors in there but um just used it. that's there all the slides the, one of the things I wanted to say about the you know with Maura's house, the alcoholic, um, it was funny because it was a really hard set to do that one um, because we all had a hard time trying to figure out who she was, you know, and in a way, um, I guess Neil didn't really develop that overtly, you know, or obviously it was only when the, the actress actually arrived on set in the morning of shoot was the first time I kind of thought, um, you know, wow, that's, there she is, that's the, that's Maura, you know. And that can be a really difficult thing sometimes that in a way maybe until the actress gets into the costume and starts acting maybe nobody really has quite pinned down who they are like some of them kind of come easier than others you know but that can be a really hard thing I was really worried about that set I was really anxious about it I kept going back to it and kept thinking of it you know have I hit the right place with this you know and you know until I saw her on it and even then I was still questioning you know it so so much of it is about feeling your way through and I think for the for a director as well I think you know like even though Neil wrote the script there was so much of it he was still sort of changing and adapting and thinking about you know all the way through you know that it was never something that was really pinned and finite and you know there was lots of things that he couldn't sort of say this is who they are and that's who they are definitely and you know so you're really it's am it always amazes me with the amount of you know how much of it can be just at that last moment you know, when on the day of shoot or something, when all the elements come together, you know, that you kind of go, that's finally the thing I'm seeing, you know, mm -hmm. that is so much work and thought's gone into it, you know. That well, some sometimes I even feel that, you know, you, you, you know, I, I avoid going to rough cuts of things because I've gone to quite a few times where there's been a rough cut of a film I've worked on and, uh, God, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, that set didn't work. And, but when I see the final thing, and you see the proper sound mix and perhaps the music, whatever, and that other you know element suddenly um, okay, you know it it, it does work. Um, yeah. Like I thought the character of Ondine would be a lot more humorous. In like in the script was quite humorous, but that the actress who played her did have very little humor in it in a way, you know. And so, um, yeah. I mean, I guess I mean. It's all about kind of communication, but uh, I don't know. Sometimes ideas and things can be kind of hard to pull out of your head or out of somebody else's head, and you know, it just takes a while for it to sort of uh, somehow come together, you know. But I think you're right because it's that <coughs> process when it depends, each project could be different. It would be, mm. you know, sometimes you've only got a, a week or two when the actual real sort of designing kind of happens until you get to the sets. Um, sometimes it's a longer process. Um, but it is when you go to the, the very final thing and especially if you can have the luxury well, it shouldn't be a luxury but it sometimes is of having the rushes projected because mm. uh, usually you'll have the DP and you might have the costume designer and you'll have the, uh, obviously the director and the, oh, mm. the main HODs and sometimes it's at that point where you know, as you say you can see what the characters really are or uh, you can see what's working, or the DP can, you know, point out something about your work, or vice versa, if you know, those relationships flow.
and it's different in every film. I mean, sometimes I work really closely with the DOP uh, on colours and on all of that kind of things, and sometimes not so much really. And sometimes. What was it like to work with Chris Um, he worked. I mean, he's you know he's he's um, bonkers, you know, <laughs> in a way, and he's good fun, you know, and all. Uh, he didn't really. I mean, he was very easygoing in a way that he didn't. He didn't try and. Um, he collaborated with Neil a lot on ideas, you know, um, and I suppose didn't collaborate in vi in, a, in a sort of visual style. If you know what I mean? He just sort of let me do my thing, and he filmed it, kind of. He didn't really get into that end of it. Was he around during pre-production or? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah. But he was more, he was less, yeah, in some ways less interested. I mean, he was quite easygoing and kind of, I think he felt like he kind of could shoot, make anything work or, you know, and he probably could, you know. There was something, uh, when I saw it, I thought that the, the stuff that was shot in the Mother's Cottage was kind of lit the most magically or the most stylistically in a way. Mm. Everything else was kind of tending towards being a little harder edged or a little more realist, but he kind of, he upped the magic button quite a bit on that. Yeah. And it didn't differentiate it, but I think it kind of needed that because that's where that character lived. So it needed, yeah. it needed that to help make her a little more, more magical and little, you know, make the possibility of her being magical. Yeah, yeah, and also the underwater stuff. And funny enough, actually, until I saw that, it wasn't until I saw the film, the actual film, and they do <coughs> um, certain stuff with sound. She's singing on a boat, and then they go underwater, the camera goes underwater, and they sort of distort the sound underwater. And for me, that added a huge amount too, because having seen all the rushes and stuff, and the, you know, a lot of times I think, where's the magic? Where's the magic? You know, but uh, it was funny how much sound, I think, played a really important element in that film to try and create a certain atmosphere, you know. Um, yeah. If you had your choice, would you like to get more even kind of loose parameters from the director you were working with? Because I know, I know when I work with people, I, I prefer, I don't want to be on top of them because I don't, you know, because they're better at their job than I am, for a start. But to just say, you know, let's keep this stuff, stuff in this kind of general area, let's keep this stuff in this general area, and then within that, range you've got an awful lot of freedom but is that a way that you prefer to work yeah with? i mean i've worked with people with the directors who just actually don't care what it looks like and that's the worst yeah that's absolutely the worst who just let you do whatever you want and but they but they don't really it's not taking responsibility though. no but it's like i mean it was it was a tv director kind of years and years you know years ago and it was actually a film he directed but um you sort of feel like you're at sea then, you're kind of like bobbing yeah. around, wondering, you know. Uh, and then on the other hand, um, I've kind of done some preparatory work with a director who had very rigid ideas about what they wanted. And I felt in that case then I had no, there was really no room for me to expand on anything or to sort of input stuff, you know. And, and they were having real problems with stuff I was showing them. They were interpreting initial images very literally, you know, and kind of, honing in on things, but they wouldn't have a cup like that. And you're going, well, you can have whatever cup you want, you know, but what do you think about the mood of the photograph, you know? So um, it's somewhere in between. But like what I, what I did like about Neil is that it did feel he, he understood collaborating with people. And there's a difference. I think sometimes maybe first time directors can feel they have to control everything. And that's not what collaborating is about. You're still controlling things if you, you know, are collaborating. You know, and letting go of and letting other people 
come back to you with ideas or you know but sometimes I find with first time directors they can be really trying to sort of control it all it's the baby kind so of you know, you kind of walk out you know, yeah yeah, yeah. It, you know. whereas it felt like he he just was so used to kind of um, collaborating with all sorts of DOPs and designers and stuff that he was quite happy to let you know all the yeah. ideas kind of wash over him and as you say kind of edit which ones edit the things that were of interest to him you know there's something about that though when you're making kind of quite key decisions quite you know far into the process where i think it kind of does if everybody can live with that insecurity it's some, it doesn't have to be completely insecure but if yeah. there is that kind of unknown quality then you still it gives it a life in some way you know what i mean you're not going to lock down six weeks beforehand there's still things that are changing and yeah know, i mean within way. reason you know because i mean in some ways it's almost like a whole performance because until you know even if you build a set until they've they've lit it you know the dop's lit it you kind of don't really know what it looks like in some ways you know and until maybe the the actors walking in their costumes it's just how all these things they come together at this like kind of last moment um on the day of shoot and uh so it is like this performance that's kind of you know all these elements and these strands you know and they eventually sort of I, I had that experience on, on my first short where um i saw the actor actress in her costume in front of her house and in that instant i knew that the accent that we'd worked on for the last three weeks was wrong yeah. <laughs> and they exchanged it overnight yeah, yeah. I, I mean it worked yeah it was just so what did you change the accent to the costume of the house yeah <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. She wasn't happy, but it was for the best. <laughs> but then I, I um, was chatting to a director one time who said uh, something about um, that their last idea, they, who changed their minds, who's you know notorious for changing their mind and stuff, and uh, they said that their last idea was going to be their best idea. And I just thought, oh God, no, that sounds no. awful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's the first. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes it's the first, you know, but um, I don't know. It's um, it's all about instinct, I think, as well, you know, and uh, trusting your in- instinct, you know, and things. And mm. But also, I mean, it's a kind of dilemma as well, because a lot of things, you know, are, you know, a lot of our kind of work is uh, about logistics, you know, yeah. is kind of housekeeping. I kind of call it the housekeeping part of the whole thing, you know, that. Uh, you have you know 60 locations and you, you can't really just wait for you know have can uh, fall in place uh, sure. you know you can't just sort of say right okay well let's let's look at um, you know 450 locations and we'll choose a little later you know it's just not physically possible you know so you have to you know sometimes a, a designer actually just is forced or has to push the sort of yeah. shape of the film um, along to try and make the housekeeping have a chance that the housekeeping will yeah. will actually go into place. You know, so but we're we're always juggling. You know? I think every director knows that there's a certain point at which you have to make certain decisions. Yeah. And a lot of us will always push right up to the edge of that point. As far as you I can. I think only you know the problematic people are probably the ones who push beyond that point. Yeah. But the, you know, yeah. and sometimes your estimation of where that point is, and other people's estimation might be slightly out yeah. of But I, you know, I think any director who's going to work well with people will know that you know if they push that particular decision too far, then all of that stuff is going to start unraveling. Yeah. Yeah, and it has a knock-on effect on yeah. other things, you know. 
Because then it, it, it becomes very frustrating for anybody in the art department because, you know, especially because at that point in the night work would have already been done. Yeah. Tough enough about doing work that was an indie. Well, what's yeah. more frustrating though is you did, it's a kind of lower of unintended consequences as well, and kind of you know, in a sort of complex situation where you know you do one thing and it sort of sets off the chain of events. Yeah. And what the worst thing for me that would ever happen is that you know you and it's ha- has happened um, that you you know you you build or you dress or you treat locations or sets or whatever, you know, and then suddenly it turns out there's no time to shoot it. Mm-hmm. And all that money and effort and time goes to waste. And uh, on one level, it's just, you know, it's a, a sheer waste on one level, but on another level, I always find it's. it's uh, and that's usually because decisions have been left too late and there's kind of mm. a little chain of events then gets kicked off. You know? My aunt lives in the, the, ter- the terrace, the Martella Terrace in Bray that Neil Jordan used to live in. Mm. And she told us that. They painted the entire terrace with kind of circus colours for the miracle, and it, and there isn't a shot of it in the film that costs like eighty grand to paint yeah, the circus yeah, colours yeah. and then paint it back to the neutral colours. But I, I sort of don't. I, mean, I thought I don't mind that. What's worse is you know when you don't get they sort of say oh we're not going to shoot that we're going to shoot that or at the last minute they're going to shoot that and you don't have time to do anything to it. Like I kind of almost like we're all ready for that. If you don't really use it, that's kind of. You know. oh, true. Yeah. But the, the whole thing about um, <clears throat> sort of changing stuff and that is, it really depends on the scale of the film. The smaller the film, the smaller the budget, I think the better it, in terms of from art department point of view, the, if the more planning there is in advance, the better. And it's only when you've got, because basically changing things costs money. And so I just worked on the Stephen Sutherberg film that was shot here um, around just after Christmas and he sort of flew in like he, he he flew in before Christmas, looked at a couple of places, went, Yeah, I'm gonna shoot there, there, there and there. Flew in a second time I think and then kinda of went, Yeah, yeah, there, there, mm, there and there and then came back for Tech Recuse, which was like two weeks a week before we shot and went uh, we went to the airport, Dublin Airport, for Tech Recce and we walked in and as we were walking up the you know, he was walking back out and goes, What's happening? We're going to Connolly Station like we were shooting there in a few days time, you know, and uh, they just, he just decided he didn't like it, having seen it twice and liked it, you know, and he changed a whole load of things, but uh, they had the money to do that. We just went to the producer and said, okay, well that's going to cost that, that and that, you know, and uh, with that kind of scale, you can, you can just, you can change, you know, but I think when it's just really, when they don't have money, then it puts huge pressure on people, on individuals to try and accommodate those changes, you know. I met, I met his producer last week and he said yes the Irish crew are hanging on for dear life but they're hanging out well I think the Barcelona crew got it worse than we did a week later <laughs> but uh, yeah yeah and they, and he works really really fast as well which which um, he kind of works faster than you know like TV well shoots I think are faster than film but he kind of works faster than TV he just doesn't do rehearsals, shoots with two cameras, uh, works really, really fast. So it took us, I'd say, about a week to get used to how fast he was working so that we could be prepared in advance enough because they got a day ahead and they just don't go by the sh- schedule. You know, they don't go by the call sheets and they just change everything around, you know. But once you know that, you can accommodate it, you know. Have you ever worked with directors like 
because I'm just thinking about obviously everything's low budget all the time and when you're writing your own script and everything, you always think, okay, I'll write around this specific location that I want to use because it's got the look and, I, and then you start, because that's how I would do it sometimes. I would find an amazing location that I'm really inspired by and I will yeah. work backwards almost instead of like, you know, almost the, the, the essence or the atmosphere creates a story in itself. Yeah. But then the danger of that is then you go, oh my God, probably it's not the right place. Now you need this and that and everything. I mean, like, have you worked on scripts where the actual location that was used to inspire the script? You well, know? I mean, I mean, he he wrote that script for Castletown Bear and wrote that mm. for Pooling Harbour and stuff. And it, it definitely worked to, you know, advantage the budget. Because they just went there and he had that location. And, you know, he was yeah, happy was with the town. <coughs> You know, pretty much. Uh, I mean, we had to find stuff within it, but he kind of knew, I guess, that the the elements were there. You know, he wrote the story for there, so yeah, it makes a huge difference. And then the Stephen Soderbergh thing, because I think originally they were going to shoot in London or something, and some producer somewhere in Ireland <laughs> convinced them to come to Dublin, and they basically came here in recce's and then wrote the script based on what they saw here. So when I read the first script, it was like, oh, you know, par um, uh, what's the one where the Bite family lived? Uh, Bless in Blessington, oh, Rusborough House, and I was thinking, oh, it must be thinking of something like Rusborough House, but no, they had seen it and they wrote it for Rusborough House. They wrote things specifically. So is that becoming more and more common? Do you think? Not as budgets are being cut no. and people are kind of working like that now. Not no. necessarily. No. I mean, I think it depends. If you were working the other way, it would require probably a good bit of flexibility in terms of, as a director, what you've imagined. Like I mean, you know I what to be, and then can it be something else? Yeah, you know? I just like the moment. Like I would find sometimes the day. I mean, at the moment, I'm working on a script and in Florence, and I've got an amazing location, and that's all in there. Now, if it was to fall through, I lost the location. My script is fucked. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I know I do have it. But it's then I feel sometimes a bit trapped by that. But um, but I find that's that's how I because I've realised okay, well, budgets are tight, or you know, it's hard to get finance, so yeah. I'll just work that way. That's a you know. But I think it's 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 rec sorry, Tom. It's recognizing what's what are the core key elements in the script. Yeah. You know that, yeah. you know, aren't necessarily the location. Isn't necessarily that you know maybe the door is there. That it mm. is that period exactly. That, you know, what are they? What is the piece about? What is the mood? What is the story? What are those really important elements? And can those things work in another? Mm place or yeah you know instead of it being a fish shop can it be you know can it be I timeless can it be like multi-locational or, or you know. yeah or you know instead of being a, i don't know is, is your job to find the locations as well is it uh well we the location scouts hmm. who would go scout for stuff but we would and then go we, the we would direct it them yeah we, yeah we direct it you know that, that's yeah. very much the thing yeah. i mean um sometimes a scout might have been on even before we were, so, the, well, you know, mm. there would be a kind of file of possible ideas. You know. mm. But uh, what I've always found is that for for the thing to work efficiently, and, and you know, you have to kind of jump in and take control of it as a designer, and um, you know, obviously then it's collaboration with everybody else. But if it's not pushed in a certain direction, it, no, so um, I'm thinking you're reading the scripts and you're thinking. I own that lovely country house in Wicklow that's just perfect for that or you know what I mean it's like you have to have a you'd have to have to know locations very well I suppose as well just Ireland like for example or whatever you know oh but you kind of would you yeah. know what I mean yeah. you'd like yeah. oh the Brayhead Hotel would work yeah. for that you know again yeah. <laughs> but um or whatever yeah. it is but you kind of would because there's yeah. a lot of places that are film friendly that you just yeah. kind of go back to yeah again you know? how much track did you do on Onodin uh I think it was eight 
weeks. Okay. Oh, maybe it was a little bit more. It might have been 10 weeks, but the first two weeks I was kind of on my own with just the location scout, and we spent a lot of time on a boat, okay. <laughs> which was really of not much interest to me, you know, in terms of what I had to do out there. But um, How much of the film is actually set at sea? Um, we shot at sea for, I don't know if we shot at sea for nearly a week. Like quite a bit of shooting at sea, okay. but I guess you wouldn't necessarily know that by looking at the film. And so, so what you were saying, it doesn't sound like you had to build too much stuff. No, we didn't. Yeah. Um, we built that set and then we um, had the this house, another house, we had a hospital. Um, what else we had? We had the town, Drapers, we had this, you know, church. There's quite a lot of other locations. Yeah. And then the boat. We had to do a lot of work on the boat. Um, yeah. So I'm guessing your um, your experience with Neil Jordan that probably involved building a lot more, did it? Uh, it did, and uh, the, the film had 120 distinct uh, sets or locations, uh, and I think 20 about 25 of those were exteriors, but a lot of them were like we had a, a caravan, um, and uh, a lot of his films actually have caravans yeah, in yeah. them, you know. Bunting. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ferris wheel, maybe. You but you know, in other words, every, every uh, location had major. We had a location in London that had to be a building site. Um, yeah. It had to be a practical building site and had to be safe, and people had to go up and down different levels, and so it was, it was quite a. Yeah, this certainly sounds like a, a lot more of a kind of confined kind of film. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Um, uh, Brexit and Pluto, uh, we had, I think, searching for different locations, we had about four scouts out scouring the country for different, could we have to get the sort of detached... I, I thought Anadine was about cheap. 12 million quid to make, but obviously from what you're saying it sounds like it was quite a bit mm, smaller. No, I think it was a lot less. I don't know what the overall budget yeah, was, yeah. but I mean in no, terms of the less. budget I had on it, it was less than I've had on TV stuff that I've done. Unreal. Uh, it was very, you know, a very um, modest... I'd imagine someone like Neil Jordan would want as much of, as much money as possible in the art department, really, you know. Well, I think he just really wanted to make this film, you know, yeah, and yeah. it wasn't backed by a big kind of studio, mm. so, you know, he was happy. And also, there's a, what's above the line is one thing, and what's mm. below the line mm. is it's a completely different, mm. different thing. But it's funny, you, you were saying about writing for a specific location, because mm. I just had a meeting last week with somebody in London, and... Uh, and uh, a very, very good film, um, a very good script, and it was a writer-director. And it's, it's a thriller, and has sort of uh, quite kind of complicated sort of sequences and chase sequences. And it's set in London, but there's one particular sequence, and it was sort of all going from, you know, and part of it is somebody's using uh, uh, um, Google Maps or some sort of satellite mm. navigating system to direct somebody who's been chased by a number of other people. And so I was asking the, you know, you know, we might not get that particular thing. What, how did you go about that? You know, it's very specific. And um, he said, well, basically I went to Google Maps and I, I knew what my story was and I had my computer screen and I had two screens. One I had my, you know, typing. Then I was looking at that and I was looking, okay, we can go there and go this way and go that way, you know. So you actually, so, you know, but part of the reason I brought it up was that, uh, you know, it, this film may not be shot in London, it may be shot somewhere else, you know, so it was really about trying to get sort of, uh, mm. you know, what the what what the atoms are of the of the piece, not yeah. so much. Either. I know, obviously, it was the story, what were the characters and whatnot, but 
yeah. sometimes at certain places just have a, a story oh, yeah, there yeah, yeah, and yeah, just kind yeah. of yeah. you know, let it well that's why you yeah. choose a particular location over, over I, would, I would shouldn't say just a location but maybe the way it's already dressed or has a certain you know maybe it's completely disheveled or something quite really interesting there or it's like a, some sort of interesting canvas for something else yeah you know? so well, I suppose that that can be recreated, you know, yeah. depending on the budget as well. But yeah. you know, can be or should be able to be recreated. Mm. That feeling and you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, had, I had the other end of the scale where I'd written that my feature film I made last year was all pretty much set in one house with a few bits and pieces random about. And I thought I was being very clever working in the low budget and just sort of one house. And then when we did the breakdown, we saw that the house it had to be the most specific location in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a it's a world of no electricity. It couldn't be near street lights. It couldn't be near a busy road. It couldn't be near, there's no food. So it couldn't be near any livestock. It had to, you know, it, just the list of requirements just started going on and on. We did find it. It took a long, long time. Where did you find it? It's on the shores of Loch Down. Oh yeah. House, okay. And I went and I looked through the window and I knew in that moment. And I also wanted. The whole thing of like Irish cottages, Irish houses, they're all these small, deep set windows at kind of waste level, you know, mm. which cast horrible light and not enough of it. You know, it's both nasty and, and mm. not enough. And this place had huge windows and you could shoot. You know, so was, that the was that the piece of lockdown that's inaccessible and you have to go down a really long yeah. track to get yeah, to yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we're at the bottom of what became swiftly known as the Hill of Death. You know? yeah. It burnt out the transmission on the 4x4, so everybody had to schlep up it every night. Oh. <laughs> Are there many production designers in Ireland? I mean, or do you do you have to always constantly go back and forth to England? or Many production designers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or do you find more work in England? or? Well, I, I studied in England and I kind of did my sort of, I guess, my apprenticeship in England. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I have a lot of contacts there, so I kind of go back and forth, but obviously the last couple of years I haven't, you know. Um, in fact, I did. I just finished. I did uh, many years ago. I did a film East is East and we've done the sequel to, to West is West, uh, which we just shot and finished a few weeks ago. Okay. So I hadn't been back working in England for a good long time. But designers here, it's probably. Few. I don't know how many. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's about six who are kind of active, kind of all the time, I think. Um, yeah. And then there's another bunch of people who are, you know, yeah. active mm. some of the time. Mm. Something like that. I don't know many actually. How do you find out about gigs? Uh, how do you, I mean you said you went for this interview, were there three or four other production designers going for that or how does that work? Uh, it depends. Sometimes there's a few, uh, I don't know, I mean everybody kind of knows everybody here. All the producers know everybody, you know, it's so small so, like, you know, if you get a it depends if there's a film that comes in with like a foreign producer and director then they'll probably interview a few people but if it's people from here they'll probably have a fair idea of who they might want to work with and they'll interview them and then based on that they'll decide to go with them or this is the first near jordan one you did is it yeah i did i did work on the butcher boy as an art director so um i'd had you know i had worked with him before mm. kind of and he sort of remembered me from that so um i suppose we had some sense of each other and i'd heard a lot about it about him <laughs> but um yeah it just depends but it's it also is. the kind of a you know you know availability thing as well yes who's sometimes it's a beauty contest and sometimes it's sort of <coughs> same team who's available mm. at what particular time and you know, all that kind of stuff as well 
But you don't have you don't have agents or anything like that. You work. I I don't. It's no. in your interest Thank to keep you. on this, keep familiarise yourself with producers and what's happening. And I'm just wondering how you when it's not when difficult to do in Ireland. <laughs> it's so I don't small. really do any active. I just sort of I don't know, hang around and wait for the phone to ring. I don't know, you know, I mean, there's no point. They know you're there, kind of, the people mm. here, you know. It, I, it's everybody knows what everybody's on the radio. Yeah, and there's no, not that there's no point in chasing stuff, but, you know, in a way, you just going to, I don't know, that's my, maybe my personal view, you just... I, I have an agent from my UK kind of end of things, you know, and uh, I guess that sort of, uh, you know, puts my fingers into that market, so to speak, you know. But also as well, I think that uh, production companies and producers would pitch designers at certain for certain projects at certain levels. So, you know, if you've got like a really, really teeny tiny budget film, you know, with a first time director, you're probably not necessarily going to ask certain people who work on bigger things because they think A, they won't be interested in B, they want to spend too much money. And, you know, so there'll be certain d designers who more or less do really low budget stuff um, and they tend to do a lot of those and then there'd be people who do sort of the bigger end of medium to big stuff. You know, and they kind of, it does kind of divide yeah. it like that. Really. And also, I mean, you do get typecast as well. Like, yeah, like, you get yeah. a lot of uh, scripts set in 1970s. You know. I do, yeah. Yeah, I do. I think I get all the kind of arty things, basically. Because I worked with Nicholas Rogue, and I don't know, I think that type typecast me into slightly arty stuff. <laughs> but I... I remember having a conversation with a producer and I heard that there was some sort of war movie coming in and I said, no, don't just, don't not interview me just because I'm a girl, you know, that I wouldn't be interested in a war, you know, doing a war movie because that would be kind of typecasting. I would. I and would really like to do a period costume drama. Yeah, I would, I would actually. Second World War movie. Well, should I sort of yeah, uh, yeah. show yeah. something completely different in a way? Um, my thing is more, I mean, there's about a bit about the kind of artistic end of stuff, but it's more perhaps about some of the logistical things. Because uh, every film has a script, has a certain amount of resources, has a certain amount of time, and has a certain amount of ambition. By ambition, I also mean the kind of the design, the artistic intent, and the storytelling, and all of that. Um, but I... Um, the very first film I ever designed was something for Bob Quinn um, called Bodawani and uh, since got called The Bishop's Story but they're sort of basically the same film and at that point I didn't even quite realise um, that films got designed. I was a, a real film buff, I uh, used to go to London from Galway, it's my hometown, I'd go on the coach and spend four days in London going around the National Film Theatre and the Everyman and all these different places and uh, you could buy one ticket and you could stay for three films, you could just, as long as you kind of, uh, I think just showed your ticket, you went in and out, you know, and um, so I'd go and see kind of a whole load of Antonioni or Tarkovsky or whatever and uh, never ever realised that even despite seeing all these films that actually there was sort of a, a, a certain part of it that might be something I would do. And anyway, then slightly out of the blue, Bob Quinn asked me to design this film. So I kind of think, well, what does that involve? And he explained. So and it was very low budget. We filmed it on Clare Island, and uh, we had a particular main location, and we had very little money. And uh, so I decided, well, this place needed a certain look of curtains. And I think I could afford, there was about, in this particular house, I think there were eight or nine windows. 
but they were all exactly the same. And I realized, well, I could afford uh, sort of four curtains. <laughs> so I got the four curtains made up, and then when we went into a different room, I'd go around, and we never see the house from both sides at any time, so I could, you know, the front would all be, the curtains would be on it, and swap them around like that. And then one day, um, Seamus Deasy was the DP, and one day he, um, we were filming about, kind of, I guess, three quarters of an hour into the scene, said, Tom, there's supposed to be a curtain on that window. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I think any money I'd saved from my little yeah. you know, tiny pot was completely wasted because we had to go back and redo the whole thing. Mm -hmm. and then, so that was kind of a lesson that never sort of left me. So sometimes you, you know, sort of always realise that that's, yeah. you know, you can actually be too parsimonious and you can kind of you know, literally cut off your nose to spite your face, you know. This is from, obviously from the Tudors, which I'm going to sort of concentrate on. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, go, I'll flick through the photographs first. Um, this is a little bit different. 80% of this was shot on the sound stages. 20% uh, is shot sort of on either, you know, wild, or not wild, but, you know, countryside locations um, with about maybe another sort of 5% of that in specific sort of um, buildings like Christchurch Cathedral or um, a church up in Drumcondra, which is an artist studio which we use for something for the, the Vatican. Once I got this uh, project, um, like Anna, one of the first things I did was to um, actually break down the script, and that's just the first six scripts. Um, and all the different, they're all different, unique sets. I mean, whole way through, um, and then working out. This is just sort of episodic, kind of which episode are in when they're coming, and, and there's various upper breakdowns. And then I would have done a, another bit of this, which had sort of how much labour I taught each thing, and how, you know how much money we need for set dressing on each particular set. You know. um, and <laughs> so one of the things was uh, something like this, this sort of episodic television, which is a particular beast, which I hadn't done that kind of beast before, um, it's very much set on an American model, but part of my job was a lot of housekeeping. Uh, it was the look, um, but the look sort of, well, we you know, explored the look relatively quickly, um, but then it was how do we, you know, how do we invent a machine that could literally give us that look consistently again and again, and also to, uh, to try and get some of, you know, these multiplicity of different sets. So we ended up designing that every window and every door were standard, but you could put three windows together to get three windows across. So everything was interchangeable. It was like a, an absolutely giant um, jigsaw that all the bits could go together. Um, and the other unusual thing about this, it, there isn't a single director. So it's sort of kind of... Uh, in a funny sort of way, put somebody like me and a costume designer and a DP into a sort of a position of influence that we wouldn't normally kind of get. And we did have a lead director on this, but uh, he, uh, he was <laughs> kind of a particularly eccentric person who was living in LA, a British guy, but uh, we talked a lot on the phone and by email. Uh, but he didn't turn up till two weeks before we were due to shoot. Um, and uh, which was a sort of 
pretty difficult sort of way of having a collaboration. So we, we couldn't wait. We had to sort of just plough ahead. Um, so when you were pitching for the job initially, were you pitching to him or the producers? Or? To the producers yeah. uh, and then sort of got on and to the producers and then also to, well, quite a few people, to the Irish producers, essentially Morgan and Sullivan. And then I had to sort of pitch to basically to uh, Showtime with a network in America who were doing it. Uh, luckily, I had done something with them uh, a few years ago, so they sort of knew who I was. You know. And did they have like ideas or? Oh, very much, okay. very much. Yeah. That's so the, di the difference between TV and film, really. With film, you're pitching to the director. Yeah. Okay. And the TV, it's more so the well, not more so, but it's the director and the producers. But yeah, yeah. Especially, I think this sort of American model episodic television is very much there's a sort of producers and the network. The, the sort of producers in the network that kind of they, but they had very but even something like George Gently you could say yep, from year yep, to year they were like yep. oh we want it more colourful this year that's coming from the from the BBC or from the producers or whoever you know we want it more this or more that you know yeah. so but in a funny sort of way we had on one level a little bit more freedom but on another level uh, I would have loved to have you know somebody kind of jump in and just be uh, you know uh, a much more it's, it's simply time I mean two weeks was no first of all it was too late at that point but you know you would need you know a good chunk of time to really you know go through it and go through all the logistics and you know parse it down to sort of see what are what's the most important bits you know? because I mean I don't know if you're what you're like Anna but when I read a script I get a little movie in my head you know and that's the first sort of instinct that you have and I've learned to sort of trust it a fair bit you know um, and then that's you go into the meeting with the director and you try to kind of figure out is that you know are, are these two movies in in because they only exist in the head at the moment you know mm. are they anyway kind of you know parallel or convergent you know? um, so this was an unusual situation before this there was a kind of a doodle before that which was purely just actually you know king's chamber um uh, great hall all the other kind of bits bedroom one bedroom two you know all that and that little arrows who's going what where and sort of uh, again like a bit of kind of a, a traffic map of how do things connect and who needs to go into that and then that's refined to something a bit more like that and then as we go along the wonders of technology we computer program that builds everything in 3D very quickly uh, called SketchUp so we use that as a sort of uh, and that's just a printout from there but it's something that could be done reasonably quickly so then we could chuck it around as we well we can also do little um, views through and get lens angles and things like that so that's that's how it sort of then got into some sort of shape. So then it would get a little bit more refined. That was how long a, would you need, sorry Tom, how long would you need to change that? Uh, well, the way we worked it out was that we basically, we, we had three stages. So um, one stage would be filming, another stage would be um, preparing, and then the third stage would be usually being stri struck to uh, change it around. So that, that sort of worked as a, a good system. And then essentially once a month, we were out for about three or four days um, on location. So that gave us time to change other things around. Were you shooting episode by episode or were you? Um, the way they liked to do it, or liked to do it was to do uh, two episodes together uh, in a block. 
uh, with a different director for each block, um, which is not a very efficient way of doing it, I have to say. I mean, I can see why they want to do it, because they want to kind of keep a certain freshness of approach all the time. Um, but it meant you're going back to the same locations or sets again and again, so it means all the furniture, everything has to be held for the 20 weeks of shooting. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, not a terribly efficient way of doing it. But, uh, then in the season three, I think we did it, uh, we had two blocks, which was logistically a lot better. And, um, but it's a complex dance, the whole thing of different, uh, um, different log logistical things. Uh, it's slightly different as well from film in that most of the actors were completely on contract the whole time. So we didn't have to work around the actors' availabilities. Um, apart from a couple of people, uh, the bulk of them were there, so otherwise it would have been impossible to, to schedule the whole thing. So like that table, for example, you would have used that a couple of times as well? Sorry. Yeah. Um, oh, so, so the more hero... This is Colonel Woolsey, so uh, he was a bit of a posh, important character. So kind of the more important characters got their own things. But uh, some of the other people on some of the other sets were more background sets or more generic sets, like taverns and all the rest. There were we had a stock. We ended up uh, purchasing quite a stock of furniture that um, ended up being reused all the time. And you're talking to, for example, is it the unit production manager about schedule? You don't have to be involved in the logistics of set schedule, do you? Uh, well, I sort of delegated it to my main art director, um, uh, who was a lot better at it than me. Uh, but we sort of took the two of us, uh, Coleman, of course is his name, the two of us would sort of, we would try and figure out uh, how, how it could be, you know, what resources we had available, and what the script needed, and we kind of roughly block it out, and then we'd present that. Uh, the production would have their own ideas of which order things should be and then somehow between all of us it, it got done but Coleman would have done the nitty gritty of all of that kind of thing. Most of the sets didn't stand but uh, they were, they, because as I, as I said they were all, all the doors and the, the windows were on sort of a certain unit size so we were able to, each year we can build up a little bit more of stock. Oh yeah, that's the uh, Tower of London. Chap about to be boiled alive. This was uh, a particular uh, script requirement that says a guy poisons uh, some bishops, he's, and he's a chef. So Henry, and this is all completely true. Henry decides that he should be um, uh, have a fitting punishment of being boiled alive. Mm. So uh, then uh, that was one of the weirder design challenges. Basically, was trying to figure out well. What size does a pot need to be for somebody to be boiled alive in? And looking at research, well, what sort of pots did they have? And they had some pretty big cauldrony type things as well. Um, but everything we saw were actually relatively shallow, only maybe you know four or five feet high. So we made this about five feet high, um, five and a half feet, um, because it would just be more dramatic for the person to be lowered completely into it. And then we had to figure out well, what do we make it of and how do it. And there had to be fire. This doesn't show there's actually fire underneath and smoke or steam coming out of it. So it was all quite an interesting thing to solve. Could I just ask at this point, Tom, about 
How much do you know what the director is going to um, show uh, in, this, in, the, in the scene? I know the script will say he's lowered in, but how do you know how much of the set is going to be going to be seen that you don't waste time building stuff that's not? Well, something like this, we do, you know, most of our sets on these were 360 degrees complete environments because you, you're going to be, um, you know, filming multiple, we nearly always had two cameras going all the time um, and you couldn't predict that. Okay. Now, we did do some other, you know, little bits and pieces where we knew that there might be a particular blue screen sort of set up that we knew we only needed to build a certain thing and that all those kind of things would be drawn, everything would be drawn up or little models made or uh, little pre-visual things done in the SketchUp computer program. So we, we, in those cases we only build what we what we need. Yes, so it's but more practical to go for 360 and... For, for something like this where we're going back and there are long scenes and uh, yeah. you know there are repeating scenes going back into places. But most of the time anyway, even if you're on location, you're sort of going for 360. Yeah, I mean every director would, I mean, you prefer it if you can, you know. It's yeah, I mean I think more and more they sort of, you know, I mean back in the, back, you know, many years ago or something they would have been really specific about what they're shooting, but I think nowadays it's just, you know, it can change on the day or, you know, you're not, you don't know exactly mm. where the shots are going to be necessarily, you know, so you've got to sort of provide for. Well I did, unfortunately I don't have, I've got a, a photograph, I don't have a slide of it, but uh, on the West is West, which I just finished in uh, England, uh, we had to do a 1970s department store, and I said, to him, "There's no way we can possibly do that." Uh, and it was a shoplifting scene, and it was quite a short scene. It's only it lasts about a, a minute, and it just didn't justify spending a huge amount of resources on that. So we literally worked out. I made a model on the computer, and with the very collaboratively with the director, uh, we worked out well what sort of things would we be stealing, where would it be going, what sort of department store it is, all that kind of stuff. And uh, what well, we we found by this stage we'd found a, a good location to use for it. Um, so we literally drew a sort of elaborate storyboard, I guess, worked out the sequence, and I built three sections of sets that worked absolutely only in one way and the camera went a degree this way or a degree that way it was a uh, you know, blank space and um, but it seemed to work so. and then so even on sort of some of the uh, exteriors we got involved in all the banners this was a pilgrimage it was a kind of a, a rebel uprising which was called the pilgrimage of grace and they had a particular uh, uh, symbol which was uh, sort of meant to be Jesus's heart um, uh, with a spear through it, and uh, they they used that as a as a kind of badge. So we became involved in manufacturing all of the the look of all of that. And what about costumes in that? I mean, well, obviously, there's a John Burden was a costume designer on that, um, but we worked very closely yeah. all the time. Certainly, at the, the, quite intensively at the start. To kind of get the sort of look and the, in a sense a certain something like this has have a template look to 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 go um, and then after that uh, we, we keep checking back certainly on every new set that would come up we, we check back on what she was thinking of doing and, 
And one of the other things I, I certainly had a, a sense of at the very start that this needed to be. Um, um, I put. I don't know if you noticed in the thing, but a lot of the windows are up quite high, um, in order to kind of cast, so that you can light through them, but that there are quite large areas of darkness underneath. And that worked quite well for some of Joan's costumes because she was going for quite dark grounds, I suppose you'd call them, and all the with with lighter material that's uh, either sequins, not sequins but uh, you know gold treads and various other things so they would they would light up um, sort of almost come out of the darkness and then also she was using lo lots and lots of you know, silks and taffetas and things that would, would be quite reflective and um, so a lot of us our talking was about you know how do we Keep within this template, and but do that because even though there was a, you know, a, certainly by Irish film standards, a, a good budget for the whole thing. You can see from the amount of sets that are on it, you know, that uh, that budget gets spread on a long, long list of different sets. So it was whenever it was a lot of um, talk went into you know, shortcuts for all these different things. Generally costume design and uh, production designers work pretty closely yeah. together. Certainly the first mm. couple of weeks. I mean I think once once the whole machine is up and running and you're actually shooting, you're checking back on different things but there's you know, obviously less collaboration. Mm. And how do you source all the the Say the furniture. I mean, I know I'm sure you might make some quite a bit of the, of the set dressing and, and so on. But the, like the the table, I like I was just thinking of that table there. The detail was beautiful underneath it. Yeah, that that so. well, m the posher stuff yeah. came from London, and that right. was where the sort of in yeah. from higher houses in London. Right. Uh, but obviously, you can imagine. I mean, you know, we did deals with them, but even with the deals, you yeah. know, you can hire something for twenty weeks. It's terribly yeah. expensive. You know, Cause most films you you'd hire something for. Most a set would ever stay up on a film, even quite a big film, would be for a couple of weeks. After ah, right, 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 right. So it's very different. Yeah. Um, later on, uh, I think from year two onwards, we we uh, we went to India and we sourced some materials from some props and mm. furniture from India that we owned ourselves um, and basically got uh, all the sort of shivas and. Uh, Ganeshes and everything, got them all chopped off, and uh, we had a, a two-person model-making team um, that were on full-time with us, and they cast up uh, Tudor roses or lion's head and things. Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors in Dialogue. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.ie.